Today's episode of Getting Better Acquainted is not a conversation, it's a talk that I gave about conversations. And I gave this talk in the Invisible Picture Palace, which is a greenhouse or glass house. It's a place where people can go and listen to radio and audio and buy some of that audio if they want to. And it does in the evenings, it does events, it does talks, it does residencies. The Invisible Picture Palace is run by In The Dark and you should check out more about it online at www.invisiblepicturepalace.com and Nina from In The Dark asked me to do a talk there about In Conversation podcasting. It is edited in a slightly more open style actually. I've left a lot more ums in than I normally would. The talk contains clips from various podcasts as well as me talking and I would recommend that you go and listen to those podcasts and all of the podcasts that I talk about you should check out. I'm not endorsing every podcast that I talk about, but you still might like them. That's the thing about podcasts. There's a podcast out there for everybody and my taste is no more valid than yours. So I would urge you to listen to the shows that you hear. And in the case of the extract from Mark Maron, that episode of his free podcast that he puts out every week still for free, that episode is one of the ones that, whilst it did go out for free originally, you now need to buy it. It's a premium episode, but it's not very expensive and it's really, really worth buying. On Friday, there'll be part two of this talk, which will be the question and answers section that happened after what you hear today. Just so everyone knows, I'm recording this. Um, so that's like permission <laughs> or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello. Wow, I like that. <laughs> Hello. I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Tonight we're going to get better acquainted with In Conversation Podcasting. Hey! <laughs> cool. Um, so, yeah, so, um, sort of done a dummy run of this on Sunday and, uh, I was advised to go and watch some TED Talks, uh, but I haven't had any time to do that, so hopefully I'll be relatively good at doing this. I make a podcast called Getting Better Acquainted, which I've been doing for a few years now, and I've been doing podcasts for even longer than that. Uh, some of them have been good and some of them have been terrible. That's why I'm, I guess, qualified to talk about podcasts, which is what I'm going to do now. There's been 85 episodes of my show that have aired, and there's more than 100 that are currently in the editing bank, so I've done... I guess about 185, let's say, conversations. And in the process of doing that, I've learned a lot about how that works. But also, I'm obsessed with listening to podcasts. And so I've, I've heard, I mean, I, I probably hear about, I don't know, 20 in-conversation podcasts a week. So I've observed things about the genre as I've gone through that. I'm going to start with an extract from a show that I decided to do today. So hopefully this will be good going into so it's from the jv club with janet varney which is a podcast where janet varney talks to 
famous actresses and comedians, I guess, or semi-famous actresses and comedians, about their teenage years, and it's only women. It's women only. So it's basically women talking about their adolescent years. This is episode 36 with the guest Kathleen Rose Perkins, and Kathleen is the woman that you hear speaking first. Happened to be the same year that my parents split, too. So in eighth grade was a big year for me. I was starting to become really interested in boys and 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 they and trying to get them interested in me and then having friends going don't even think that you can do that because we hold that part of this court you know yeah and and then my mom going you don't need a man you don't need a man so then like from age 14 to 18 I was like uh I would date a guy find you know finally like see find somebody that was interested in me and I was interested in them and after four weeks I would grow sick of them like I would feel nauseous if they came around because my mind was saying you don't need a man you you know all of this stuff of like I'm gonna have to do certain things with them that like it will lead to sex and that's a scary thing and I I had a traumatic experience like I lost my virginity when I was 14 and I didn't really mean to (laughs) it was it was not it was not full on I wasn't fully on raped but I it just wasn't you were ready Yeah, yeah I was not ready and I, I never got, because my mom and dad were going through so much turmoil in their relationship, I never really got the talk about sex or how to deal with it. And I was the only girl in the household. So all the information I got was from listening, overhearing my brothers, which my brothers were trying to lose it oh, quick. Yeah. And that's what boys did, especially yeah. around other boys. They were like, oh, I'm going to fuck that, you know. Mm-hmm they it was a whole different thing and I, I thought maybe that's just how i'm supposed to just get rid get get it done yeah. it's not and that guy tried to do it and i was like okay and then i so so after because that was 14 is that one of the things so, that you would change yeah. yeah oh yeah i would i would have i would have I would have had my mom sit me down and talk to me and really kind of like focus in on me and my development. I would <laughs> I would have made her do that and I wouldn't I w- I wouldn't have gotten myself in that situation if I could have changed that. That would have been that would have been great. But it it, it didn't happen like that. So I have to kind of deal with what had the way it happened. And subsequently, the four years after that, I didn't have sex again until I was 18 years old. And, and that was a whole other ball game of crazy. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, so it's, but that's my experience. And it's something that I have always wanted because I have nieces that are, you know, 17, eight, uh, 17, 16 and 14 right now. And they're going through it. They're going, mm. they're going through it. And I, I so desperately want to kind of tell them my experience and just lay it all on the line and try and, and try and just um, not tell them to do to follow or not do what I did or or follow in somebody else's footsteps or or follow in my footsteps any of that. I just want to share with them so they can. I think knowledge is power. Information is power, not just book knowledge, but but experience knowledge. 
so that's a little taster of the kind of things that I'm going to be talking about tonight and I think that's kind of interesting to me because the way that Janet Varney tends to do a podcast is she sort of she often talks about how she has to sit on the floor and it's in her front room and it's very much kind of women talking in a very intimate way as I think we, we've probably heard from that extract um, which is a really long way from Ricky Gervais taking the piss out of Carl Pilkington which is where podcasts originally burst onto the to the awareness of people but it's also probably the first conversational podcast that people heard and it's also an ex- incredibly long way from the conventional media interview that you would hear so originally I just wanted to to promote podcasts that I like uh, including my own and then that's what I was intending to do tonight but then the more I thought about it the more I realized I had actual things to say about the genre so uh, having worked in it extensively and been obsessed with it so long uh, this is what I have to say about it I'm, de- I'm defining in-conversation podcasts as podcasts that focus on presenting a conversation that takes place in a moment of time. They can have intros, they can have outros, and they can have editing, but they're designed to present a conversation as their focus, and that moment of time as their focus, that, that kind of listening in on somebody's conversation. Um, now, there's blurred edges around, the ed- around this definition, because many conversational podcasts take listeners' calls or uh, have clips or emails as part of the conversation. But I still think that, that is, you know, that's still the kind of format that I'm, I'm getting at here. And sometimes these conversations might happen in front of live audiences. Quite a lot of podcasts do that. Um, I'm going to be doing that here in a few weeks, in the week or something like that, and that's nerve-wracking to me. So in the purest form, though, this genre might be seen as just two people sitting down face-to-face, having an intimate, focused conversation where they have actual time to talk. I was listening to the media show earlier today and all the guests come in and they, they've got like five minutes to, to, to make their point and you know everybody's got lots of different agendas so what you hear about the media it may be very useful but it's not what necessarily the guests have to say about the media. Hello, come in. Hello. Um, so something I've learned from listening and making this kind of show is that as a listening experience a conversation is a journey or a story that is created by the combination of the people who are involved in it. And this, this talk is not really about how in conversation podcasts have changed an existing genre. It's much more about how they're forming a new genre all of their own, very distinct from what's gone before. The nature of these conversations is that they tend towards a long form, which made selecting clips for tonight really hard. Uh, Firstly, because of the amount of content out there. So, you know, every show I'm listening to is an hour, and I'm like, which bit am I selecting from this hour? But but also because of the fact that to hear it properly, you have to hear a long extract, because you're not really seeing what the genre has to offer you if you hear a short one. So there aren't very many extracts I'm going to play but they're generally long. If, if that earlier one felt short, that's right. That's, that, that is a short kind of length of extract I'll be playing tonight. Most of the shows generally have around about one hour run in time. They, they go over that quite, quite often. Although there are examples where, which are of a smaller, shorter format, around about half an hour, but nothing really is shorter than half an hour in this genre, I would, I would say. Oh, I mean, there's always exceptions, but as a general rule. I want to give people an idea of the kind of journey that this genre can take you on. So I've whittled down the clips to six, 
with that extra one that I played earlier on. Uh, and they're all ha- there to help me demonstrate the trends and qualities that I observe in this still evolving form. The rise of the genre. So this is a little bit of history, which I guess some people will know. So as I said earlier on, Ricky Gervais is what made pop- people know about podcasts. On the 5th of December 2005, he collaborated with The Guardian to get his podcasts out there. Him and talking to Stephen Merchant and Carl Pilkington. Um, and that's been a blessing and a curse for podcasters ever since because that's kind of what people thought podcasting was and and they haven't really gone further no one was really interested in going further than those Ricky Gervais things now I hope that that's starting to change but it has been a, a thorn in people's side for a long time so that's how podcasts came here and that's how in conversation podcasts came into this country but I think they were probably happening in America before that Certainly, in America, which is where the majority of the podcasts I listen to (laughs) come from, comedians have really embraced the form of podcasting. There were people like Jimmy Pardo right at the beginning, and uh, Kevin Smith, the director, you might have heard of him, and uh, Chris Hardwick, who does the Nerdist show. They sort of set up these podcasts, which were comedians talking to each other. And that has gone on to the point where there are now a number of podcast networks where these comedians are all connected together that are kind of independent networks of people producing this content um so you've got things like earwolf and uh, nerdist and uh jesse thorne's uh network and various various other networks that are going on now and it's really becoming a kind of industry made by people in their bedrooms <laughs> uh and that people are making enough of a living from or at least are getting gigs on the back of this that they can make a living from and a lot of those shows are also moving to television now uh comedy bang bang from the earwolf network that's got a tv show um the nerdist had some bbc tv shows so they're kind of hitting the mainstream a little bit the the kind of the most famous superstar if you like of this of this kind of growing genre is mark Marin whose comedy career he felt was over he tried to be on radio and he was knocked off the radio so him and his friends sneaked sneaked into the radio station and they recorded podcasts and they put that out Uh, and now he does it from his garage or his garage I should say Mm -hmm. and you know now he's actually got a sitcom out of this which is going to feature his podcast as part of the sitcom in a kind of way that Seinfeld featured his stand-up as a a feature of his sitcom so I'm going to play you an extract from WTF, which is Mark Maron's podcast. This is Mark Maron talking to a guy called Louis C.K. that some of you may have heard of. Louis C.K. and Mark Maron were friends back in the day. Then they stopped being friends. Then they did this podcast uh, to kind of reconnect. And the first guy you hear is Louis C.K. When I had my daughter, uh, when my when when uh, the, her mother had her in front of me. Uh, everything changed. I just fell in love with this kid. I just felt, I remember she was uh, screaming in the delivery room, really upset. She seemed particularly upset. I mean, kids are supposed to cry when they're born, but she seemed angry to me and upset. Like I expected just, oh, you know, when a kid's crying in the delivery room, everybody's, yeah. everybody's smiling. Yeah. Oh, look at her cry. You yeah. know, but I was really upset for her. <laughs> yeah. And, um, they put her on this little table and they're putting stuff around her. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. Unexpectedly emotional. 
It's not a story that I tell a lot, so. It's all right, man. some water <clears throat> water is good it washes away your love for your children so you can <laughs> talk without a shaking voice um yeah they put her on this little table yeah. and they're fucking jabbing shit into her yeah. and they're just rough with her and she's yeah. screaming and her mother it was a c-section so her yeah. mom was being sewn up her mom yeah. was just taken away right <clears throat> and i'm like in the middle of this i'm between yeah. her mother like do i care for also her mother is who i'd been caring for she'd yeah. been pregnant for nine months and i'd right. been caring for her yeah and it all had been about her, the mother. The thing that happens when you have a baby is, for the better part of a year, you live with pregnancy. Right. And it's all about that. Right. And then you sort of feel when the, ki- when the woman's in labor, you just think, this is about getting this woman through this. Right. And when it's done, we're going to go, that she and I are going to go home. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You really don't, as much as you think you understand, you don't really understand that right. someone right. else You just know you got to go to the hospital. <clears> you got to go to the hospital happen. and get through this thing that yeah, we've yeah. been taking classes yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. been reading books about yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been coping with her emotional instability and her vol- the volatile, you know, suddenly we're going to build a new kitchen. I got to go buy wood, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, stuff like that. And she was really into her pregnancy and I got I was there with her mm-hmm. and um, and then uh, there's a, you just don't know until you see the kid's face that there's somebody who's now going to be with you for the rest of your fucking life yeah yeah and so when I and then and I didn't know how that would feel but when she came out yeah it wasn't about my feelings yeah it was this kid is scared shitless and she's yeah. really angry of being taken out of her mom <laughs> yeah and I was pulled for one second. There's, there's this woman that's been the center of all this. Yeah, she just got cut in fucking half in front of me. Yeah, they just made a hole in her belly and took took this kid out, and she's being sewn up and she's alone. Yeah, and this kid's over there and she's alone and I'm in the middle. <laughs> yeah, so I went to the kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I got my head next to hers. Yeah, and I said, she's screaming, yeah, purple yeah. face. Yeah, I said. It's okay. It's yeah. okay. You're yeah. going to be okay. It's yeah. all right. I'm here. Yeah. And she stopped screaming on a dime, turned and looked right at me. Uh-huh. And, you know, kids can't see yeah. an inch in front of them yeah. until they're like a couple of weeks old. Yeah. But she turned her head and opened her eyes and looked at me and stopped crying. Oh, my God. And everybody, all these practiced yeah. Yeah. people yeah. said, oh, my God, she heard you. <laughs> one person said she heard you. And then one woman who I didn't know what was, I just heard a voice say, she knows who you are. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then somebody at that moment stuck a fucking pin in her foot or something yeah. and had blood and yeah. just screamed again. Ugh. But um, it didn't. I didn't understand that I had a role in this kid's life until that moment. Right. And so it became about this kid. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, she changed everything. And one way that she changed it was I expected her to be unhappy. I figured my whole... In under- general? Yeah, just because she lived in a, someone's belly and she was just, you know, living this perfect life. And then you're taken out to where your skin is raw and being hit by the atmosphere yeah. and you cough all the time. Yeah. And, you, and you just, yeah, what an awful life. That's yeah. the way I always looked at it. Like, it's just terrible. <laughs> and the moment you're born, you're coping. Yeah. Right and out of the just, gate. You must it's just like, be This awful. is it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. shit and piss yeah. and just <laughs> ugh, diapers and just what an awful life. But after that bout of crying, she was, you know... Within an hour, she was breastfeeding and she was happy. Yeah, I watched her eat her first meal, and I watched her shit her first shit. Like I saw the the, the system start working right yeah. in front of me. Right, 
and she dealt with it beautifully. Yeah. And I was inspired by her. It's and, interesting and had, that having a positive attitude about life. Well, that moment where where well, I think that happens when you you're primarily want to have control of your life and you know, and the people in your life and to a certain degree and that you were there for your wife and that that moment of concern where you realize like there is this raw life in front of you. Yeah. And and on some level outside of you being the father you really have no control. No, I just had huge sympathy for this kid. Right. That was the main feeling that I had. And, uh, and th- everything started to flow from that. And, and I also found out, I mean, I don't like babies as a human. Like, that's, I'm not wired for that. And before I had kids, I was really worried about yeah. having kids because I don't like being around babies. I didn't right. like them. I didn't feel sympathy for babies right. in the past. Yeah. And I didn't know how I would get. I thought it would just be taxing. To be uh, have someone screaming and crying, to not be allowed to things on paper that you know about being a parent, you don't sleep very much. They get right. you up in the middle of the night. I was like, I you knew can't. all that, yeah. And I, I was like, I can't do that. Pregnancy gives you some training for that because your wife gets up in the middle of the night. She has to pee. She needs help. Yeah, you, you, pregnancy is like a perfect training program for having a kid. It's the closest you can get anyway. But anyway, what I learned was that. I could do it all. I, I didn't mind getting up. I didn't mind being bleary and unsleepy. I didn't mind her screaming and crying because I, I just had sympathy for her because I wanted her to be okay. So yeah. I found out that uh, I'm a patient person. I didn't know any of this about yeah. myself. I'm a patient person uh, that I had capacity for love, for giving love and affection that I didn't know that I had um, and receiving it and that I was really interested in teaching her in talking to her and interacting with her, all this stuff that I never knew I I had. So it made me, and, and all this stuff about my own anxiety about my life just went away because I didn't give a shit. I, I instantly knew that I'm going to get old and die, and I wasn't afraid of it anymore because it's about her now. It's about uh, giving her a chance to be happy and have her own confidence in her own life. That's what it became about. But it was a struggle that I didn't give up without a fight, like you said. In yeah. The special, and it's I laugh at that special for different other reasons than other people. I laugh at it because I was such a young dad. I didn't. That shit's old school to me now. Your kid gets you up at night. You know. So what? It's. It, but I also think it, it represents the conflict of of it, it. sounds to me what happened was you know you've got to accept that as I do that we were we are and and, and can be you know, extraordinarily narcissistic. And, and, and we have those feelings that like, you know, yeah. we create our world and, you know, we, you know, we comment on our own brains and you were primarily commenting on, on things that you imagined. And that at that moment, it seems where, where you became emotional and, 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 and in the moment where it really happened was that it, it, it just, it shattered your narcissism. And, yeah. And, and it also, it also taught me to be a man. It, it did what Copel like, said it would. It taught me to be a man because you have to, you can't fuck around when you have kids. Right. You can't afford to go into a depression. You can't afford to go eat yourself into a stupor yeah. and lay on the floor. You can't do it. You got the kid needs to be taken care of, and the kid needs to be supported. I, I suddenly had a reason to raise to earn money that was real. And, and this whole thing is what really defined this the new the next phase of your creativity. Yeah, because all these struggles are still real to you. You still eat ice cream, but yeah, now I still you do have that the stuff. Kids. But I've learned, and also I learned. I started to look at shit as a real man does. In other words, instead of going like, I'll have an idea when I have it and uh, fuck the fucking system and the studios are assholes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who, why isn't I getting the gigs? All that kind of stuff. Waiting around, uh, expecting shit to just happen 
I couldn't do it anymore. I had to start going like, okay, what do you want to do? Make plans. Make actual plans. Okay, so I mean, as I said, it's a long. It was a long clip, but I mean, it was a long clip to show you how you know it shifts between different parts of conversation. And also, I wanted to to put in the personal, but I also wanted to make clear the the comedy element that these are two comedians talking about the career their careers, and that's kind of the the blueprint for how I would say this kind of American comedy conversational podcasting movement has has followed that. They're all shows where stand-ups talk to each other, which is not something that they would normally do when they're standing on a stage. A stand-up naturally talks to an audience. They don't have a conversation. Um, and in a way, I think that's why they're all so excited by it, is that, that they're getting an opportunity to converse and to, to riff off each other in the way that, I guess, improv comedians and people, you know, actors do quite naturally. That, that This is a kind of way into that for these comedians. They're not all serious conversations Mark Maron's generally are but they're not all serious conversations and everybody's doing it you know it's it's got to a kind of crazy level and I'll play a clip about that in a little bit where every comedian is like right I've, I've got to have a I've got to have a podcast every other comedian's got a podcast I better get a podcast is that somebody wanting to come in you yeah come? it is you should come in <laughs> and like, and they've, they've realised through doing the podcast though I think that, they, that what happens is that they start doing the podcast and then they realise that this conversational format is what works so there's a show called Who Charted which is about the charts basically it does a, it does a music chart it does a film chart and then it does a chart about the guest and so it's the two hosts and a guest and they talk about the charts and they've recently started a spin-off called Two Charted that comes out later in the week where the two hosts talk to each other. And I think that one of the reasons they've done that is because the audience has responded so much to the conversation, to the fact that they're, they're getting to know personal details about these hosts. And, these, and they, they tell it in a very different way than, than what you've just heard. They're riffing, they're, they're, they're joking, but it's still something genuine that they're talking about. And that's something that uh, Jackie Cation, who does a, a, a podcast called The Dork Forest, she often says in her podcast, what she's learned is you don't have to be funny, that what people respond to is not funny. What people respond to is people being passionate. So what she does is she gets people on who are dorks or geeks or whatever about something. They come on to talk about the thing that they're obsessed with. That's the format of her show. So I've been talking about American comedians, but obviously... British comedians have been influenced by that American movement and also by Ricky Gervais and what he's done. And, I mean, the most obvious person to, to mention is Richard Herring, who started doing a podcast called Collins and Herring with Andrew Collins. In a similar sort of situation to WTF with Mark Maron, they got chucked off a radio show, so they decided to make it in their house. And they made these, these conversations where they talk for an hour and five minutes because that's how long Garage Band lets them record for. Um, and th there's some critiques to be made about those conversations. I've listened to a lot of them. They are, you know, you could say that they're self-indulgent, but there are moments which really work, which are really funny. And that's one of the things about this form. That's one of the reasons it's long form is that people take the time to find those moments that work. It doesn't almost matter if, it does, if, if bits don't work because the bits that don't work lead to the bit that's really successful. You could say, why don't you edit out the bits that don't work? That's a question that could be put to Richard Herring. Um, but I mean, after he did that show, he, 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 exper he, exper he experimented with other formats, and I think he's most recently found a winning format, 
which is very successful. At the moment, he's doing um, the Leicester Square Theatre podcast, Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, where he gets people on stage in front of an audience and they talk to each other for an hour. So he's had people like David Mitchell or the guys from the League of Gentlemen and stuff like that. And he, he's been doing that in Edinburgh as well. And I think that he's kind of gravitated back to that conversational format because he knows that that's what's worked. He's tried other things. They haven't connected with an audience as much as I think the conversations that he's having now do. So two of the UK's most popular podcasts, Answer Me This and uh, The Bugle, are also in a conversational style as well. So there's quite a few people in this country that are doing it. There's been a comedy podcast pile in. Anyone that's a comedian has been making podcasts. And this is a extract from a podcast called The Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Um, I selected it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the person that you hear him speaking to, Duncan Trussell speaking to Natasha Legario, they used to be in a relationship and they used to make a podcast called The Lavender Hour. Then they split up. Then Duncan Trussell started making his new show. This is the first time she's been on that show since they split up. Won't really go into that much. The rest of the conversation after what you hear, which is the start of the conversation, it's very awkward, it's very uh, complicated. I don't think either of them always come off well in different ways, but it's certainly a really genuine conversation and I would recommend it as, a, as something to, to listen to. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that Duncan Trussell's show is always one I would advise listening to, but this particular episode is, is very interesting. So here it is. Hello. Hi. It's Natasha Legero, everyone, the person you've been requesting over and over again because we promised you one final Lavender Hour. Um, but this is better than a final lavender hour because it's her first of many appearances. It's my first podcast tonight. It's her first. I had one today. You've I've on... got one tomorrow, and I have two on Wednesday. You've been on the podcast circuit, huh? <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. It's amazing. Well, what, what's happening is there. It's there, so much more than morning radio because it's like you have to kind of bury your soul. You mean bury your soul? Huh? You said bury your soul. Bear. Well, yeah, well, it's better. I mean, morning radio, everyone's censored. What ends up happening on a podcast is you end up having a normal conversation. It's the greatest right, thing. but it's recorded. So it's kind of like conversation at its best. Like if I met Eddie Pepitone and Sean Conroy for coffee, yes. we wouldn't have the same conversation. Like when the mics are on, everyone's like doing bits. Well, yeah, because it's... You're having like a heightened because experience. Because you're trying to entertain people with it. right. That's what I mean. So it's it's just an interesting type of conversation. It's right. like a performance. It's well, yeah, it's, it's like, performance conversation. It's performance conversation, which can be exhausting. It's comedy too, but it's it's more like ja- it's like doing for for comedy what jazz did for music. It's it's allowing comedians to kind of experiment with long form comedy without having to worry about setups and punchlines. Oh, it is a kind of long form comedy. Yeah, that's what it is because. Commu- yeah, like Eddie's that I did today, the Long Shot podcast. It was very funny with Eddie and Sean Conroy, and they, they, uh, they have a topic. Like today's topic was tradition. Oh, cool! That's cool. And so you you kind of keep coming back to it. Like you'll go long periods without talking about it, and it's only like an hour, but you know it always kind of comes back to that idea. And I kind of like that as a through line. You're right; it's like a long form of comedy. It's a long form comedy because you keep bringing it back up. Because comedy is a is it can be a repressive art form in the sense that it's it's as i mean as it as it evolves it seems to be becoming less formulaic but it definitely is like 
very structured. You know, everything's got to end with a big bang. You can't, which is why if you get on stage and just start meandering and talking about something like what we will end up talking about here, and there's no big thing at the end, no big ending, no big punchline, then you have to do the thing where like, I just, guys, that doesn't have a punchline. Then everybody laughs. You have to create a a fake punchline just to give yourself permission to do that. Whereas on a podcast, you can just do it infinitely and it's really fun and people like it. People ask me if I want to start my own podcast like at least three or four times a week. That's a good thing. I mean, not people who want to do it. Just people are like comedians. But there's Comedians a, keep asking each other, are you going to start a podcast? But, but I don't want to feel like I have to start a podcast. That sounds like so much work. Well, there's different ways to do it. I mean, but it is it is a lot of work. I mean, it takes like up... Like in the future, do we all have to have a podcast? This takes up all my time. That's what I mean. And you only do it once a week. Well, sometimes twice a week. But I love it. I mean, I, I think it's a blast. Hey, how does this take up all your time? Well, because Excuse I... Me. Well, because I send out... I mean, there's other stuff, atta- stuff attached to it because we have posters. I got to see something. Slightly avoiding yeah. a particular subject. Yeah, well, they, do, they don't avoid it for very long and uh, it gets... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty raw conversation. So, but moving on from comedy, there are conversational podcasts from astronomy to pop culture, to mental illness. One of my favorite podcasts is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour, where people <laughs> talk about serious, serious, serious shit um, in a public forum, but in a very intimate conversation. So it's kind of public, but it's private. It's very interesting. There's, you, there's shows from, there's a show called Pedestrian Polyamory, where people talk about their open relationship. Uh, and there's a show called The Indoor Kids, where people talk about computer games. You know, that's, uh, there's uh, Bright Club did a podcast for a while where a comedian talked to a scientist about uh, their subject. Um, and then you've got the JV Club talking about teenage years. Um, I'm, I'm sort of referencing all of those things just to give people an idea of the width of the, the, the kind of conversations that are out there. There's science, there's theatre, there's movie, there's sports, uh, there's news. Anything that people are interested in is being talked about by someone on a podcast. <laughs> um, but I would like to say a note about editing and craft. Uh, it's easy to s- dismiss podcasting as a lazy medium. People who heard that last extract might think that there's a laziness to it. When it's done well... It's not lazy at all, even when it's not edited. And lots of podcasts are edited. I spend a lot of time editing mine. I mean, Duncan Trussell may not edit his main conversation, but he, he puts these intros together that he put, spends a lot of time on that he thinks are very good. Um, and that his audience obviously <laughs> think are very good too. So I'll come on your podcast, Duncan, if you want me. Um, but uh, but th- that, that's the thing, that, that it does take a lot of craft to make a good podcast like I'm talking about this genre obviously there's really strong elements strong shows and there's weak shows and often people hear the weak shows and then they judge the whole genre based on the weak show so I just wanted to make a little comment on that so why now and why conversations okay so you can see in conversational podcasts as a reaction to a negative situation people are hungry for conversations because we've become socially fragmented due to the way we work and they provide a reconnection with social engagement that we can consume on our commutes. A pale substitute, you might say, for bonding in person with other people. Mm-hmm. And that's one way you can see it. And there's some truth to that. But I would also say that you can see it as a very positive step forwards 
in that they offer people an opportunity to connect with people outside of the standard media dialogue. So it's a different kind of media that you can hear. You can hear people in a different way than what we're used to hearing on the radio, what we're used to seeing on the television. And there's something that can be done by anyone in any way. Anyone can make them and anyone can listen to them. And as a form that that acts as an anti they act as an antidote to the dominant staging and presentation that we are presented with in the media. Podcasts are a result of technological development, allowing anyone to make audio, but the growth of, in conversation, of the in-conversation genre within this medium is not just to do with that, I don't think. I think it's, it's also because talking on your own and making things on your own is really lonely. Um, and so there's people want to entertain themselves when they're doing them so they find someone else to talk to um, but I also think it's, it's related to a desire within audiences for unmediated or at least differently mediated entertainment and art I think people are looking for genuine stuff to hear that genuine stuff and what I found exciting about my kind of adventures in it is finding it finally finding after you know 28 years now, I'm 31 now, but 28 years of, of not finding it, and then I found it. Um, through the internet, we have access to conversations that we would never have heard from people and places outside of our lives, and this allows us to consider the ways other talk and think in a completely new format. We get portraits of different areas of our own culture that we might not normally get, so... Um, there's a podcast called Conversations with Matt Dwyer where he, he does conversations with a female butcher, with a sex worker, uh, with, you know, with people that are in our culture that we would never hear. Um, we might hear them in a, a programme, but we'd hear them in a five-minute section of a programme, you know, and we wouldn't hear them talking how they, how they talk when they're relaxed. Um, and we also get to, to talk to people, who, like to hear people talking who are completely outside our culture. I mean, there are people who are doing, you know, going into other cultures and doing conversations with those. And I wish I knew more about them so I could give you some really good examples of them. But they're out there and I want to find them. So tell me if you find them. Um, people whose knowledge might, and we, get, we hear from people whose knowledge might be dense and complex if we read a book by them. But when they talk in conversation and they engage with somebody else in conversation, suddenly that information might be much easier for us to absorb. I'm not saying that works for everybody, but I find listening to academics talk in conversation much easier than reading an academic textbook. Um, and I think it's, it's both an extension of Big Brother and reality TV and its antidote because reality programming is, is not created by its subject these are real windows into people's lives rather than windows into television sets where people are manipulated and put into unnatural situations so often there is a, this kind of there is this tension i am broadcasting my life out to everybody but i don't think i'm doing it in a way that exploits my life experience and i also and the experience of my guests and i also don't think it's in a way that kind of patronizes the audience in the way that i think reality tv tends to so this genre's flaws are also its strengths. So it has a loose format, and that can mean that we can get great moments, like hopefully like one, some of the ones I've played earlier. Um, but it also means you can have really like tiresome bits where people are just not talking, you know, they're just giggling to each other without any kind of connection with you, they're not thinking about the audience. So it's loose form, it's also its, 
is, is also a big flaw. Um, they can be unfocused, which that sounds like a negative, but it can mean that you can go from one idea to another idea and you don't know the people making it, they don't know where they're going and you don't know where they're going. So that's also a strength, but it is a flaw as well. People often say that they're too long. I hear this a lot as someone who regularly releases over an hour of content every week. Sure, some podcasts are too long, but the long form, as I think I've already been pointing out, is a strength of these shows. That I, I think it's probably that's why you get the, the best of this. It really comes from long form. I, I don't think long form can be under, uh, under emphasised as being important to how these conversations work. Nobody gets in, de- in depth in conversation in five minutes. You really start to know someone late on. Um, you can end up with people saying things that are not true and that you hear as fact. I often say things that aren't true and I think of fact and I listen back in when I'm editing and go, well, that's not true, that's wrong, <laughs> cut that out. And sometimes I have to put an apology afterwards because Jen says, I didn't actually say that and then I <laughs> to work it out. And I guess that's the, one of the few f- flaws that is just a flaw, really. But, 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 but I think that the, the, the fact that people can talk about their ideas does mean that you're going to hear information that you never would normally hear that might also be right. And we can judge these conversations like we would judge any conversation and judge if we want to trust the people talking to us. And we're more likely to question them than we are if we hear a, a news programme because we know these are people in their bedrooms chatting shit. And when we hear a news programme, we think these are people who are experts who are talking sense and they don't get any network <coughs> notes there's no one telling me don't make your podcast like that upon my friends who say make it shorter <laughs> and that's a, a strength because they can do anything they want but it's also a flaw because it means there's nobody telling these people in their bedrooms do it better do it do do that think of your audience more it's kind of an interesting thing i think i mean it might be a, a general thing in art that all things that are flaws are also strengths but gen- it definitely is in, in in conversational podcasts i think so what are the main traits in this genre? So they're about personal relationships with the audience. This seems to be a, a, a audiences feel really passionately about podcasting in general, but they feel particularly passionate about podcasts where they've heard someone talking about where they're at. And that happens a lot in conversational podcasts. They tend towards people being open just because when you're having a conversation, that's what you do. And even if you're joking, you know, even the funny podcast, people end up talking about stuff that is is quite open. It's kind of like that you wouldn't normally hear. And I think this openness is an interesting thing because we, I don't know, it's, it seems like our media is a really open media, but I think we know, most of us, that it isn't, that we, we don't get, get all of the facts all of the time. Um, and again, I think this openness trend and trait in, the, in, in conversational podcasts is a kind of desire for... For something more it's long form i've said lots about that i'm not going to go into that again <laughs> um it has a thing called which i call hyper realism but you could call it happy accident so i mean in most art when you have when it's when your attention is drawn to the fact that it's a creation it distances you it distances you so if a play starts talking about how it's a play you're distanced and you're watching it from outside if a book starts saying it's a book you don't feel as emotionally engaged with it the moments that podcasts say that they're podcasts, you actually are more aware of the moment that's happening. And that doesn't just happen when people comment on it, which is a little bit meta and boring, but it happens when the real world interrupts. So I'm recording this tonight. We've had people coming in through the door. Every time someone comes in through the door, that's going to remo- make the people who are listening at home go, 
that's a real thing that's happening in a greenhouse with a load of people looking at you, making you feel a bit nervous. <laughs> and, you know, my podcast is good examples of this. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't select them tonight, but there's a lot of good examples of this. Like, one time I was recording on the, the bank of a river and a dog came along and sniffed the microphone and we had to get the, mic- the, the dog to go away. That made that moment feel much more real to the person listening to it. Or there was a moment when a friend of mine was talking about, we were in my back garden and she was talking and there, was, there were birds singing and she was talking about and looking at these kind of medieval texts and reading a poem about a person talking about birdsong mm-hmm. at the same time as there was birdsong in the background. And so those kind of happy accidents, those kind of moments that remind you that it's a moment are great strengths within this, in this podcast genre, but it, they also are a real trait. People focus on them, I think. They try and bring them out. I certainly try to... I don't try to engineer them, but I do try to make them happen. I don't know if that, that's, that seems a bit like a polit- politician speaking there, so I guess I do try and engineer them. Oh, and another example of this in my podcast was someone was talking about having a premature baby that nearly died and in the background the baby was crying so you know that's a really powerful moment but yeah I was going to say as well people being aware of a microphone also reminds you it's happening and I've had that a lot in my show in that a lot of the people I talk to aren't aware of microphones they don't, they're not used to it so they don't really care but a few people I've had on have worked for the BBC say or uh are just very very nervous people and they are really aware and I had you know a friend of mine licked the microphone as if it was a lollipop <laughs> in, one, in one episode um, another you know another uh, friend of my father's spent a long time uh, worrying about where the microphone was placed and that really kind of um, told us something about those people through their awareness of the microphone and so yeah personal connection and intimacy is clearly one of the things that's going on in the clips that I've been playing. Mark Marin and Louis C.K., I think we could tell probably from that extract, but if you hear the whole two-part two special, you really get into that stuff. Um, there, are, there are shows like, there's a show called The Dawn and Drew Show, which is done by a husband and wife, where they're these two punks talking about their life, their life every week. And they've been doing it for seven years. They were doing it well before most of the people I've mentioned. Um, and you know what draws people to that show is this personal connection that they're married and they're talking. I mean, and in fact, they had this crazy thing that happened to them where they were robbed and nearly murdered in Costa Rica, um, which they sold as an episode to their fans because they knew that, that, that they should, you know, they could make some money back from this horrible experience and actually, you know, sort their lives out with that money, you know. Um, and the personal connection between them is, I think, what attracted people to buying that, as well as the fact that they built up a relationship with them, listening to them. There's a number of uh, husband and wife teams, actually. There's a show called Totally Lame, which is designed to ask the most important people the least important questions. So basically it asks people silly questions, but it gets into some deep shit from those silly questions. Um, And that's a husband and wife that run that. Um, And again, you know, one of the strongest episodes of Richard Herring's podcast recently was when he got Stuart Lee up on stage and they had a conversation. And who better to interview Stuart Lee than Richard Herring since they've had... A, a history together and obviously my show is kind of a very big example of this personal connection and intimacy because what my show is I don't think I did the tagline earlier on is I am having conversations with the people I know from my closest friends and family to someone I once met in a bar so the conversation I had with Jen who's over there who's my girlfriend is a very personal one the conversation I had with my dad over there 
uh, is a very personal one. Uh, the conversation I had with Jesse was very much about getting to know each other. That hasn't been broadcast yet, but it's a very good one. And uh, similar when I had the one I had with Helen over there, was getting to know her as well. It's become very upsettingly meta now. Um, <laughs> And one of the things that that means, that personal connection, but it doesn't have to be personal connection, because I think we experienced it, um, is that what work makes these conversations work is when people have a rapport, when they start bouncing off each other and they kind of feel they get into a space where they can talk really in. Like, and it's just, nobody's steering the boat. The boat is just driving on its own. And that happens easier when you've got intimacy with someone already, but it, it can happen with, with strangers, and I'm sure we've all had that experience. And what happens now is it happens with strangers on mic. Um, and it's all about capturing a moment. So not just a moment in time, but also a moment in someone's life. So I've had some very lucky experiences where I've sort of interviewed people just before they got married or just before, you know, moments where something significant was happening. Um, the American comedian Tig Notaro, who people may have heard of, has had a series of tragic events in her life recently where she was ill, then she, then her mum died, then she got cancer, and she lived this experience on comedy podcasts, not just her own, but in, like, a, there's an episode of Totally Lame that I would very much recommend that actually happened before she had cancer, but where she's talking about her mum's death and things like this. Um, and, you know, it's capturing her in a moment in time, you know. It's a real, one of the things that we sometimes talk about um, in my friendship group uh, is that my conversation podcast is a memento of now. Like in 10 years' time, we've got these mementos of now that we can listen back to. And, yeah, the, one of the things I've been talking about the most, I guess, is long form. And that, that is an, an element of podcasting that I kind of call the late state moment in the conversation. Pete Holmes, the American comedian who does a podcast called uh, You Made It Weird, which if anyone thinks my podcast is long, they see nothing. One of the, things he, one of the reasons he says that his podcast goes to sometimes over two, you know, two and a half hour uh, <laughs> length is because, you know, that's the, like, an hour 45 in is where the real interesting moment, the, the moment that feels really, in his idea, weird, that moment happens. Um, and that's also the moment where people forget the mic. Like, I, I wouldn't say it's as late in the conversation as he would. I would say about 45 minutes in, that's the best time to ask the really big question that I have for someone about the big moment in their life because they'll feel the most relaxed at that point. This sounds very manipulative. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. I've got an example of this, of my manipulation, that did happen very late on, actually, um, in a two-part conversation with a guy called Radcliffe Royds. Um, I don't think I need to really set it up. I think he tells everything about his life in this extract, but I can answer questions if people are confused. My responsibility, I feel, in that is to is, is to is, is to carry my experience as, as you know, just to tell that experience to people, so that should they feel they want to try and have a go, I'm very happy to tell them what I did and how I did it. Yeah. But I needed a lot of help, and I needed a lot of other people's time. And input, and a lot of that. You know, what's interesting then is, is an awful lot of that was was just being rehumanised. And there are people that had a huge impact on my life that all they did was just acknowledge me. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to, to tell what uh, tell you the value of that when you've lived a life where ten thousand people have walked past and no one. Has yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, I I can understand intellectually what you're saying, but I'm completely aware that I don't emotionally understand it one one little bit. 
I'm not sure if I emotionally understand it, but <laughs> I, I, I emotionally have experienced yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I can't so imagine like feeling that eating. way, I guess. That's what and, I mean. and I have had the, the one of the most, you know, I mentioned earlier about the humiliation of going to jail for a leg of fucking lamb. <laughs> one of the most poignant things is my children's nanny. So I was with another friend begging outside a tube station and I looked up and my children's nanny was there standing in front of me crying at me how can you live like this that was awful that was awful I could see the pity and the rejection and the sort of incomprehension and she'd seen me as a, as this sort of in my own world, and she'd she'd seen she'd you. heard the slides. Yeah. Know if I know he's in trouble, and then she encountered me as a homeless street beggar. Wow. Amazing, really. No, I mean it's amazing, and amazing is the right word, I guess. But also, it's the opposite of amazing. It's very mundane in a way. Like, but yeah, there's nothing. Those are the sort of things that touch me, that moved me, that I can. You know, it's been really good this because I'm, I'm sort of remembering in, in in stillness. It's not a performance. I'm not trying to show off. I'm just mm. trying to share stuff that had a power for me and still does. When I, you know, I I was just remembering. It was a day very like this. The same sort of light quality, and she was slightly in shadow, and I, it took me a while to recognise her. And uh, it's such a tiny little story in, in the billions of people on this planet. That interaction of of a woman whose job was to look after somebody's kids, seeing their father in this much reduced state. God, I haven't remembered that in an age, Dave. Well, I'm. Um, Glad to, yes. glad yes. to have been able to be part of you remembering it. As you, I mean, I hope uh, that that extract kind of, I mean, it's quite a short one for, compared to some of the ones I've been playing, but I think that that kind of captures all of the qualities that I've been talking about, really. The fact that the light influenced how he was, how he was, you know, his memory was, it was, the moment was captured and it was about not just the time we spent together, but the location. I mean, you, you'll have heard from that extract that he was a homeless man but we we were having the conversation in his home so he's not homeless anymore and so that in itself um, added to the conversation that I was in this house that this guy has built up um, interestingly we never said it in the in the in the conversation but he said afterwards uh, and Radcliffe's a great guy I, I know him quite well now um, but he had made that he had made that house out of things he had found in skips. The furniture is things he, ha he found in skips. And when he was homeless, he lived in the skip. So it has this kind of really nice, I don't know, dramatic irony or something. So that's basically conversational podcasting. <clears throat> what I want to talk about now is about how conversational podcasting approaches material uh, in a different way from the conventional media point of view. So I think it's like about 
how it's framed, so how we've seen with these extracts that I've been, and it, been showing, it's about creating space. It's about creating some space to actually sit down and talk, which rarely happens in the media. There are some really great radio shows that do this, and I'll mention them later, but it rarely happens in the media that space is created for subjects, because we don't have time. Nobody has time. I, I, I sympathise with people in the media. They're just rushing around trying to get the story. I totally understand. But and the other thing I think is really significant is it's about co-authorship. So when you have an, in an interview in the media, there is an interviewer and there is a subject. When I do a conversation, I'm not the interviewer and they're not the subject. They can ask me questions. I will get into my stuff. You know, I don't know where it's going. They don't know where it's going. They choose what they reveal. And so we're co-creating this conversation together. And that space means that you know famous people like Tom Hanks or Ellen Page or John Hamm, Jack Black, Robin Williams, Russell Brand, these are a few people who I've heard do this, um, get the chance to present themselves behind the hype. So they get a chance to cut through how they get presented. You know, they're still manipulating themselves, I guess, but they're not being manipulated. So we get an opportunity to see behind them. But also, we're hearing them in this format where we can judge their performance in a kind of way where if they're basically when you hear someone who's bullshitting in a conversation or podcast I think you notice and I think that none of those examples have been guilty of that uh, they've all been very interesting behind their hype this this genre is interacting not just with other podcasts because there's a lot of podcasts that use this format as one-off episodes so like there's a show called I Like You in Canada that, that have occasional conversational podcast episodes Savage Love which is uh, Dan Savage's Sex Advice uh, podcast. He will do conversational moments with his callers sometimes, and he'll also have guests in where he'll do a conversation. So I think that that, that conversational format is spreading across podcasts. But I also, also think it's really influencing radio, uh, especially in the States. I think uh, This American Life has had a number of episodes that have been very influenced by this form. Uh, radio Lab has also been very influenced I think in the way that their their co-hosts talk uh, they've been very influenced by this kind of genuine experience that they see exp happening in, in conversational podcasts although I would say that they maybe should think a little bit about how they maybe talk to their uh, guests yeah. um, about how <laughs> that they could make that kind of giving people the space to co-create things maybe with their guests yeah. a little bit how they do with their with their co-hosts um, and on that note, I'm moving into em <laughs> empathy within the media. Like, I think that, that there isn't very much empathy in the media. And I think that what conversational podcasts have to offer is empathy. So I'm going to play you a couple of extracts now by a guy called Carl James, who, when I said co-created conversation, I owe that to him, really. He says, yeah, I think that's, what, that's the phrase he uses. So I'm not plagiarising him. I'm just talking to him a lot. So what is the change? listening can create I'd like you to listen now to uh, just a small clip from a conversation I had with a man called Stephen Stephen is a very good listener and he and I were having a conversation and he was kind enough uh, actually to say in the conversation he said I see you're a very good listener I see you're a very good listener um, and I asked him how he could tell and this is what he said. The most obvious thing is that I find I'm saying things that I, I feel are quite magical, really. I mean, I don't mean that in any big... It's not 
I don't mean it's me being clever. I just mm. find I'm, I'm being articulate. Mm. And in a way, moderately precise here and there, in a way that I couldn't be if I wasn't being really listened to. So real listening enables others to be articulate, to tell their story articulately, their true story articulately. Why is this important? And, and how could we do it more? Um, this is what I've decided to share. Three examples of how I listen and why I listen. Uh, and I, I suppose my theory is that by listening generously, we enable others to refresh or reveal or to reappraise maybe their story. Uh, and I think there might be a link between the quality of our listening and the quality of the story that we listen to. So that's an extract and a little bit of a teaser for um, from a kind of podcast Carl put together as part of his uh, dialogue project, which I really recommend people checking out. Um, and that's a, it's a talk that he gave at a thing called The Story, so that's how you'll find it, it's The Story it's called. And that's where I first saw him on stage and he did that, that, that lecture, I guess, about conversation and about listening and how we listen. And I, I tried to learn as much as I could from him, but we do differ in, in some of the ways that we approach uh, what we do. And here is an extract from my show uh, where I was talking to Carl James and we're talking about how we're different. <laughs> One of the things that you talked about, kind of your main criticism, I guess, mm -hmm. or critique or whatever, yeah. is that in the conversations that I do, I connect myself and others into a kind of universal. Mm. And, you know, you really sort of said, don't do that. And I understood why you said that as well. Yeah. Why did you say that? Why did I say that? I think it comes from this uh, attachment I have to difference. That I think there is, Eddie Izzard does a beautiful sketch, used to do a beautiful sketch, about two people going out for dinner. One of them says, what kind of music do you like? They go, well, I'm like, it's a, you know, like really into heavy, kind of raw, gothic metal kind of stuff. Oh, okay, okay, I'm, I'm more sort of Sydney Bechet kind of lax jazz, right, okay. Kind of films like uh, oh, I love horror, love horror and science fiction, love science fiction. Okay, okay. I'm more into like subtitled French, you know, Iranian <laughs> documentaries about that. Right, okay. Anyway, so it goes on. And eventually they go, um, Do you like bread? And the other person goes, Bread, I love bre bread. I love bread too. Isn't that amazing that we both love bread? Yeah. <laughs> and on a first date, you're desperately seeking for something to have in common. And I think that we spend a lot of our time looking for things in common. You said earlier on you don't like small talk. No. And I think small talk is a lot about finding things in common. Oh, I've been to Spain, you know. <laughs> and I think that's all fine. And I think it's called, you know, it's called social glue. And social glue is important. You know, it's important to say hello and nothing else to the man in the street. Because one day you'll, you'll lose your cat or your child or he'll fall over in the street. And you'll go and pick him up. Or he'll knock on your door and say, I found a cat, because you said hello to each other and nothing more. So I think it's really important. But when you are deliberately, consciously paying attention to dedicating time to having conversations, I think that the 
energy and the uh, the stuff <laughs> the interesting stuff is in the difference and I think we're scared of difference and generally as a society I don't think we handle it very well I think we we, we flatten it out you know we compress it we we screw around with it and then it reacts then it erupts and then even when it does erupt we're too scared to say but most of the kids writing were black what the fuck is going on here or most of the people causing you know most of the people who are aggressive are men what's going on so it still comes out so I would say look at the difference enjoy the difference celebrate the difference and actually look for it so don't seek to go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I had an interesting experience that was a bit like that. Well, whoopee-doo. That's not... Understand their experience totally, totally. And then, if you want to flip it over and go, all right, I had an experience that's similar but different in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, they, when I do that, it, it generally is. it generally works out that way, though. I mean... When I say to, to people, oh, that's like something that I've experienced, yeah. quite often they say, no, it isn't. Good, um, okay, and, I'm glad and, they do that. And, yeah. and that's, that's fair enough. So why do you do that? Because I, I think you, you mentioned rapport earlier, yeah. which was something that we just experienced, that wasn't it lovely and yeah. warm and great. And it didn't mean we were agreeing about everything. No, and well, often I'm not agreeing with the people I'm right, talking okay, to. Okay. I mean, often I... I mean, there are lots of times when I could have a big political or a, a big... Just yesterday I recorded a conversation where the person was saying lots of things that I thought were valid and interesting yeah. but that I didn't agree with. But yeah. I didn't challenge them on that because that's not the way that the conversations that I'm trying to have go. I did try to try to distance myself, I guess, try to have the difference yeah. be clear yeah. without knocking down their ability to, to speak. Oh, and, well, and, and so I think okay, yeah. I, I think I am grappling around with this area myself. But I I, I guess whilst I agree with you mm. on every like what you said about people don't look at race or mm. uh, gender or these things mm. in a in a in a sensible way mm. we're not all the same. I, I agree we're not all the same, mm. and I get very frustrated by songs like Imagine or. Mm. Um, <laughs> Or what's it, the other one? All we need is a great big melting pot. That one. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not against mixed race people, but I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that the the, the 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 goal of the world should be for us all to be the same. Mm. But I also think that we are. We do all cry. Mm. We do all laugh. Mm. We do all experience fear. Mm. We have all got the capacity to become addicted to things yeah. we all have the capacity to um, hurt each other yeah. and those are the areas where I try to have empathy and understand and mm. get into my conversations from yeah. and that that does lead me to that universalising which I, I agree is a problem I mean mm. uh, I, I am aware of it and I try to I, I try to I try to keep it in check, but it really it, it's something that it's it's natural and it's a f perhaps a flaw in all my work that I am the kind of person who tries to make big generalized universal truths. Okay, like, okay. You know. But again, you see, it's a, it's a flaw and it's a strength because the payoff 
is that you create a shared sense of, call it humanity, in a very grand way, or in a very practical way, you're just connecting with that person, you're just yeah. connecting. And there are huge benefits to that. And it's, it's walking a wire, because you, those things are essential. And you, in a way, I used to say, and I don't say it anymore because I don't think it's true, I used to say, I'm here for you. And actually that isn't true in, in the conversations that I have, because it sounds like I'm exclusively here for you. And actually the truthful rendition of it is, I'm here for you as well as me, as you alluded to earlier. Now, for that to be an authentic meeting, <laughs> then you have to be as much of you as you can be, and I have to be as much of me as I can be. And I think that why I consciously pay attention, probably, you know, a bit too much, but it's only because I think it's so rare. As, as, as I said there, I do like to make grand sweeping statements generally in my work, and so that's what I've been doing tonight. As I said, Carl, Carl James introduced the idea of a dialogue being a co-created conversation uh, to me, and I really think that is pretty much, that hits the nail on the head. We may have differences in how we slightly go about trying to create those co-created conversations, but the other person uh, is a big factor in how those conversations go. And that is really, to me, empathy within media. It's discovering things together, touching on difference and on similarity, in a space that, that, that you, they, where it's a safe space to do that, which is not how people feel when they go in. And I'm not saying there's no value to uh, John Humphreys shouting at a politician for half an hour. I'm not saying there's no value to that. Politicians do need to be shouted at, but maybe we also need to listen and talk about ideas that are relevant to how we want to run the country, for example. Uh, rather than just shout at each other. So, I mean, I think there is a balance to be struck, and I think that maybe conversational podcasts is where that balance can be redressed. Conversational podcasts are a place where people can listen, they can notice difference, and they can have empathy. And I would like to see that in our media and our political culture. I would like to see that in Radio Lab, in the way that they did their recently interviewed the Hmong. Uh, people some people who are uh, among I'm doing what they did of not even knowing their names but uh, but but about their experience but they didn't do it in a way that that that, that was a co-creation they didn't give them space within the way that they they interviewed them and I think maybe people should think about that when they're going into to situations where they they want to interview people about how maybe say well what well, one of the things I ask people when I do my show is what would you like to talk about in this in this episode um, and I think that 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 would be a, people might get some really good stuff if they actually ask that question more. I'm gonna have one ex one more extract, and then I'm gonna finish up with a kind of grandiose kind of speech bit. Um, <laughs> they supported us to have a. Oh, right. I should say what this is. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is an extract from Thompson's Live, which is a theatre podcast where um, a guy called Chris Good invites some other theatre practitioners and artists on stage uh, in Stoke Newington to talk in front of an audience. Uh, and this is a guy called Felim McDermott, I'm terrible at getting names from text, so that's probably said wrong, talking about a theatre process called Devoted and Disgruntled, uh, which they've been going through with theatre people and 
that's a, that's probably enough. Hopefully you'll understand it from that. They supported us to have a series of 20 conversations around the UK um, where we would have one day, two day open spaces where people could work on the issues, have the conversations that they really wanted to have about what theatre might be, could be and so on. Um, and in my mind at the moment and uh, ever present is this idea of um, conversation. I mean, we're, we're, we're potentially having one now. Um, I notice I'm talking quite a lot, so that maybe it's not a conversation. Um, but what is a real conversation? Um, very often people will say, oh, that D&D &D thing, it's just people having conversations. And I find that kind of fascinating uh, because that sort of... I think what they probably mean, that's just people talking. Mm. Um, I guess that ne isn't necessarily valuable. But what I'm interested in and what when open space kind of works well is it produces what I would call a real conversation, an authentic conversation. And that means it involves people talking, of course, but also listening... And what I notice is that the good conversations that have come out of it are ones in which people discover what they know they didn't yet know they knew. So in the process of that open space event, they will come to a realisation or there will be a thing that happens in the dialogue which takes them to a place that was kind of latent but it needed that holding space in which that was going to happen. Mm. And I think, for me, that's kind of a, quite a good definition of what a real conversation might be. And, you know, I think about sort of politics and Parliament, you know, we see people every day on television. And what I never see is a real conversation. I see people firing their opinions at each other like kind of missiles... And uh, their desire seems to be to kind of obliterate the other side. It doesn't seem to me to be a real conversation. Um, the other thing that's reason I'm interested in conversation is, is um, I did some work with uh, David White, who's a poet who, who ended up sort of working in business. And his, his big obsession is kind of conversation and, and what he calls the conversational nature of reality. And what he says is, um, what does that mean? He says, well, what you expect of the world um, and what you want from it will not quite happen in the way that you want it to happen. <coughs> and of course, the parallel to that is what the world expects of you, you will not quite give or provide mm. in the way the world wants it to come from you. There will be a sort of gap between those two things. In between those two things, he talks about there being a sort of frontier. And it's a very vulnerable frontier. But if we can live on that frontier and have real conversations on that frontier, some new things and some new way of living, some new way of being, new forms of things like leadership, organisation, might emerge which might be a little bit more useful for mm. us, I think. Mm. Um, and so I'm very interested in this thing that it's just a conversation, but it seems to me one of the hardest things in the world, 
the most courageous things in the world is to have a real conversation. Mm. So, I mean, he said that a lot more eloquently than what I was getting at earlier on um, because he was in a conversation rather than speaking with a clipboard and, and yeah. looking at a load of people. I'm not trying to say that conventional media has not influenced and preceded this genre. This hasn't come out of the blue. I mean, there was Hard Talk and Parkinson and Frost uh, or on the more personal, empathetic, empathetic side, there's Desert Island Discs and Fresh Air and even Commode uh, and Mayo's uh, film show on Radio 5 Live, I think it's a really good example. What, what makes a conversational podcast work and what makes that show work are pretty much similar. Um, and often these shows... <laughs> have been very successful podcasts. All of those shows that I've mentioned uh, and the radio show have great podcasts that are really worth listening to. But the difference that podcasting has is that anyone can do it uh, and that there are no network concerns. That's the real biggest difference. It allows it to be as wide-ranging as people are in conversation. It also tends towards human, human emotional connection. Popular shows, i.e. the ones that tend to get the largest amounts of listeners, in the genre are shows where the people talking have an engaging and emotional relationship from friendship filled banter to highly empathetic from antagonistic to passionate about a subject shows that engage with dynamics where those involved are committing in a moment to responding to each other and this is part of what creates a personal relationship between the shows and their audience. And this personal factor applies across the po podcast medium, right the way across it. But it's particularly pre prevalent and like, obvious, I guess, in conversational podcasts. I'd say the best interviewers and show hosts have always had conversations. But now you're hearing anyone doing that people who aren't you know like like I said Komodo Mayo have conversations they're really good at what they do but they've they've had to learn that skill whereas if you want to start a podcast you don't exactly have to learn that skill you kind of learn it on mic but you know how to have conversations with your friends you know how to have conversations you don't know how to do it in a in Radio 5 Live studio but you but you know how to have those conversations and so since there is such a wide variety of in conversation podcasts people and topics and there are no gatekeepers i would really suggest to all of you that there are in conversation podcasts out there that you will love and that you will enjoy so go out and find them but also go out and make your own because i want to hear everybody's conversation i kind of like that idea that she said earlier on is everybody going to have a podcast i kind of like that idea i want to hear everybody having conversations and recording them and putting them on the internet and that is the end of my presentation The voices you're about to hear are Jessie Levine, who talks about The Listening Project. She's a freelance radio producer. You can find her stuff at www.jessielevine.com. And Nina Garthwaite, who is the director of In the Dark and In the Dark Runs, The Invisible Picture Palace. Did you want to say something? I feel in some ways like it's almost the antithesis of what you were talking about because it's long-form conversations that cut then short. get cut, cut short. That's so what that, Carl James does as well. There's an interesting yeah. conversation, debate to have about that. But anyway, I work for, or I'm, I'm involved with, a Radio 4 programme called The Listening Project, 
which is on a BBC Radio 4 on Sunday afternoons. And the listening project was based on StoryCorps, which is its American kind of earlier cousin, where they encourage people who know each other quite intimately, it's usually a family member or someone they're very close to, to have a conversation about something that is important to them, so something that's quite emotionally deep. It doesn't have to be serious, but it has to be something that they both feel strongly about, these two people, sometimes three people. And StoryCorps actually had a recording booth in Grand Central Station in New York, I think, where they encourage people to go in. But what we're doing at the BBC is encouraging people to record conversations with their iPhone, with their digital recorder, with their computer. There's lots of different ways you can record now in quite good quality and upload it via the Listening Project website. And what I do and my colleagues do is listen to these conversations and cut them down. So I guess the long-form conversation thing is a bit of a... Well, one of the things I said was yeah, it's, that it's you get the, strength you get the gold, what you want to do with the gold is you can make it... Like, yeah. well, arguably, there are lots of shows that can benefit from the process you're talking about. Indeed, indeed. Um, so um, <laughs> and, and the only reason I asked Dave to have the opportunity to say this is that we're really encouraging people to do that, and we'd like to hear your conversation. So if you are interested... I can give you some details, or you can go ahead and do it yourself if you like, and then upload it onto the Radio 4 uh, Listening Project website. So. And that is very much in line with the last thing I was saying, because I want to hear everyone's conversations. Well, indeed. Indeed. And in some ways, <laughs> it, you know, it is... I can get through a lot more people's conversations if it's short for. Because do you get a lot of kind of oral history, kind of uh, World War II remembrance conversations, which are not, unfortunately, appropriate if it's not people talking intimately we're not talking about events we're talking about emotions and feelings so anyway enough uh please do get involved and talk to me afterwards if you'd like just in case a couple of people are going just um i want to say and I'll, I'll say it again but thanks so much for coming here today. <laughs> The weird thing when I started in the dark it was very much like what i was interested in was like very crafted um documentaries that uh, sort of bring together sound and voice and music and a very heavily authored and beautifully authored and it's still like uh, the sort of type of radio that's very close to my heart and absolutely not what I wanted to do at all within the dark was interviews and conversations and I actually think Carl James I met recently and I heard his work earlier this year but I think it was actually really when I started listening to the Getting Better Acquainted podcast that I sort of thought I have to admit, though, my show is very heavily edited. I know it is. I know. I, it I is, know nobody believes me, which is yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it is very heavily edited. <laughs> it is. You edited out of mine being chopped out of the, the I did. place where we were being interviewed. Yeah. Because it didn't quite sound right. It didn't sound like it was screaming. No, but it, 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 it didn't. The way we, yeah, the conversation around that didn't quite sound right. And that's the kind of I do. I make editorial decisions just like the BBC. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks. And. A, Thanks. Thank Lots of clapping. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> you can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.